Hebrews 11, verse 24, or you can follow above on the screen. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before us, before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. We've been in a series looking at faith stories from Hebrews chapter 11. What we've been saying is that God never calls you to do something that you can do on your own without faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. And so each week what we've been doing is looking at this great chapter and we've been asking a question, what is faith? And how does faith work in the life of someone who's following God? So we saw Abraham and how Abraham's faith in the future and what God promised changed how he lived in the present. We saw Sarah, whose faith that God would keep his promises enabled her to trust even when everything in her life was falling apart. We saw last week the faith of Joseph, whose faith enabled him to forgive those who had deeply hurt him. Today, we turn our attention to Moses, and he's another great example in the Bible of someone who lived by faith. And here's what we see from the story of Moses. His faith enabled him to say no to sin. Now, God never calls us to do something that we can do on our own without faith. And any of you who have ever struggled with a habit that you're not proud of, maybe a secret sin that you'd be ashamed of anyone ever finding out, you know how overwhelming temptation can be, how hard it can feel to resist sin. Now, in just a minute, we'll take some time to define what sin is, but we need this passage because here we see something about the power of faith that enables a person to resist the onslaught of sin and temptation in their life. This passage is crucial for those who take seriously the call to following God. So let's look at these verses and let's see first the nature of sin. Then second, how to resist, how to say no. And then third, the reward that faith is looking at. So the nature of sin, how to resist, and the reward that faith looks to. So first, what does this passage tell us about the nature of sin? You can read about Moses' story in the book of Exodus, but right around the middle of his life, he has a conversion. He becomes someone who's a follower of God. And in that moment, 
when Moses converts and starts following God, he trades a life of prosperity growing up in the palace of Pharaoh to a life of hardship and challenge as he identifies with the people of God. So he's someone who, when he became a follower of God, gave up ease and comfort for hardship and persecution. And the text says, if you would look with me at verse 25, that in this conversion story, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now that final phrase, fleeting pleasure of sin, that's what I want to home in on for just a few minutes. Because this gets at the heart or the nature of what sin is. Here's the first thing to say. There is pleasure in sin. That's why temptation is so powerful. That's why even when you feel like you don't want to give in to something, you find yourself doing it. Because there is a promise of satisfaction or a promise of pleasure where sin comes into your life. And we see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. If you don't really know the story of the Bible, the Garden of Eden is the way we talk about Adam and Eve, our first parents, and when sin comes into the world. And so what we read about in Genesis chapter 3, this first instance of sin, is this character called the serpent that we know to be the evil one or the devil. He comes to Adam and Eve, and he comes to tempt them with sin, to draw them away from God. But when he comes to them, he doesn't say, I'm the devil, and I'm here to tempt you and ruin your life and ruin the whole world. Just listen to what I have to say. He doesn't do that. He's much more shrewd. The evil one is a wonderful tactician, a fierce enemy. And so what he does to lure humanity into sin is he says to Eve, how about that tree over there? Now, of all the trees in the garden, there was only one that God said, don't eat from that one. Just one command, just trust me here, obey me here. And that's the one the devil points to and says, why don't you eat from that tree? And so the text says that Eve looked at the tree and she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and she ate. Notice that. There was something attractive. There was a promise of pleasure that Eve saw when she looked at the tree. There was something that she wanted. And here's the trick of the enemy, the lie of the devil is he comes to Eve and he whispers this lie into her heart, which basically says, that tree looks good, doesn't it? The reason God told you not to eat of it is because he's holding out on you. He doesn't want your best. He's keeping something back from you. He's a killjoy. And you can't really trust him. And that was the first lie. That was the first time sin entered into the world and the human heart because Eve and Adam and then all of us thereafter believed the lie that God couldn't really be trusted and that he wasn't really good and he was holding out on his people. And that's the lie underneath all the lies. 
And that's why here at Reality, when we talk about sin, the nature of sin, what we're often saying is that sin is more than just bad behavior. Sin is actually a posture of the heart that says to God, I can't trust you. You don't know what's best, so I'm taking my life into my own hands. And all the behaviors flow out of that heart posture where the self becomes God. And we choose to rule our life instead of listening to God. Because we're after what seems to be the pleasure and the promise of sin. That's why Ignatius of Loyola said, Sin is always an unwillingness to trust that God longs for your deepest happiness. Sin is always an unwillingness to trust that God longs for your deepest happiness. So this is what happens. We take matters into our own hands. We see something that we think is good, something that we think will bring pleasure. And we say, God, we want it. We don't trust you that you're keeping that from us is actually for our good. And so there is pleasure in sin and we take the bait, but we don't always see that there's a hook. Now, let me give you an example. Last week in our sermon, we were talking a lot about forgiveness. And I know from some of you that I spoke to this week during small groups and community groups, you talked a lot about forgiveness. So let's just think about this principle and the topic of forgiveness for just a minute. When you're hurt by someone, God calls his people to forgive, to be people who practice forgiveness. But you know if you've been hurt by somebody, whether it's sort of a big hurt or kind of a small daily life ordinary hurt, that whenever you're hurt, your natural instinct is to get even, to get some revenge, to pay someone back. And so here we have two things. We want to be people who obey God, who follow him. He says forgive, but there's also this deep instinct in our lives to take revenge and to get even. And here's what happens. That desire for revenge, it feels more instant. It feels more gratifying. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness doesn't always make sense. But the idea of paying someone back, that feels pleasurable. And you know that because if you've been hurt, what you do in your head is you stew over and over on what they did to you. You play it over and over in your head. You find ways to sort of slander and gossip about the person and there's a kind of pleasure in cutting them down and hurting their reputation. Or some of you, when you're hurt, even if outwardly you pretend like everything's okay, inwardly you just meditate and root and hope to hear bad news has come into that person's life. And see, in all these things, what you're doing is you're stewing over revenge. And as you do that, there is a kind of pleasure in it. There's a kind of righteousness and a self-justification that you feel. But really, that pleasure is fleeting. And that's the second thing that we learn about sin. If there's pleasure in sin, that pleasure is always fleeting. And friends, you have to hear this. We have to acknowledge that sin wouldn't be tempting if there wasn't some real pleasure in it. But the pleasure that sin promises is always fleeting. I think fleeting is a great word because on one hand, that suggests it's temporal. But on the other hand, it suggests it's not really solid. And the pleasure of sin is such that it will always, always, always disappoint you. 
So think about this example of not showing forgiveness. If you choose to be a person who holds a grudge, who seeks revenge, do you know what happens? You don't feel better. You're just shackled in a prison of self-absorption. And you just are actually tied further and further to the person and the thing that has caused you pain. And you think, wow, this feels great. I'm angry. I'm, you know, I'm holding on. But really what's happening is you're just being pulled farther and farther away from wholeness and from peace. And that's always what sin does. We take the bait and we miss the hook because we've taken our lives into our own hands rather than trust God knows what's best and what leads to wholeness and flourishing. Flannery O'Connor is a novelist. In college, she had a prayer journal that she wrote. And in one journal entry, she was reflecting on sin. And she said this, Sin is large and stale. You never finish eating it, nor ever digest it. Have you ever tried to eat a really big piece of stale bread? It's terrible. That's sin in your life. You're trying to eat a ginormous stale piece of bread. And it's not enjoyable and the pleasure is fleeting and it's bothersome and it pulls you away from God and it sucks you into a prison of self-absorption. Pleasure, but fleeting. And that's the nature of sin. So here's the question though. Even as I say that, you say, fine, that's true, but we're stuck in it. (laughs) We're stuck in sin, so many of us. So the question is, how do you resist it? How do you, like Moses, choose something else? That's the second point of our sermon. And here's what you need to see. What I want to show you now is that the Bible's way of resisting sin, combating temptation, is very different than the way most people think of fighting against sin. Most people, dare I say most people in London, maybe many of you, When you think about how do you resist temptation, how do you resist sin in your life, what you think about is you need to exercise willpower. So sin, something that you know you shouldn't do, comes into your life, and you need to clamp down on that desire to do it. You need to say, that thing is bad, God doesn't want me to, I shouldn't do it, it's going to have bad consequences in my life. Willpower. One psychology journal I read reading about willpower puts it this way. Willpower is the ability to override unwanted thoughts, feelings, or impulses. Willpower is the conscious regulation of oneself by oneself. With the right mindset and motivation, we can own our own self-control. Willpower. That's bad. I shouldn't do it. Don't do it. You don't want it. Clamp down. Willpower can work, and some people are pretty good at willpower for a season. But if you've ever fallen off the wagon on a diet, you know that willpower is not that effective. For many of us, willpower is not strong enough. And more than that, the problem with willpower is it actually drives you deeper and deeper into self Because if you try to live your life and make big changes in your life, your character, your habits through willpower, one of two things happens. When you succeed, when you say no to the bad things, you start to get proud 
and you look down on anybody else who doesn't have as much willpower as you do. Oh, they're so lazy. They're so undisciplined. Why can't they just pull themselves together? Or when you don't live up to your own standards and exercise willpower, you feel shame. You're plunged into despair and you feel hopeless. I'm never going to change. See, willpower can work for a season, but it's not ultimately strong enough to really be a tool that helps us grow as people and to resist temptation and sin. Is there a better way? And the answer of the Bible is there's a much better way. And it's the way that Moses shows us. Come with me down to verse 26. In verse 26, we read this. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Here's what Moses is showing us. It's not that he didn't want the treasure of Egypt. It's not that he didn't desire the fleeting pleasure of sin. He probably did. But he wanted something else more. He was looking ahead. He was looking at something that he saw was of greater value, something that was a reward, and that's what captivated his gaze. My younger brother used to be very into fitness and doing fitness competitions. He was that kind of person, kind of annoying, you know, that fit. And so I remember years ago, we're having dinner, and after dinner, I want dessert. Now, my brother has a competition, a fitness competition coming up in a week. So we're sitting there, we finish dinner, I want dessert, so I pull out a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And I say to my brother, hey, do you want some? And he says, no, I'm good. And I look at him like, what, what does that mean? Like, I'm good. And so I scoop myself a bowl of ice cream and I'm eating and chomping down. And he's just sitting there perfectly happy, perfectly peaceful. And I'm thinking to myself, I know my brother, he likes ice cream. He's not allergic to anything in the ice cream. And yet he doesn't want it. What enables him to say no to this temptation? It's not because he didn't want it. It's because he wanted something else more. He wanted the prize at his fitness competition. <laughs> that was his reward. And saying no to the ice cream didn't even feel like a burden or a sacrifice because, yeah, he wanted it, but he wanted something else so much more that it eclipsed the desire for the ice cream. Friends, this is how the Bible says you beat sin. <laughs> Not by not wanting it, but by wanting something else much more. 200 years ago, there was a pastor who preached a sermon in Scotland. The sermon was titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. We don't, we're not good at naming things anymore. That, that's a good title. And in the sermon, I'm going to read to you an extended quote. It's old English, so buckle down. Listen to what he says. The, the, the brilliance of this, just summarizing what Moses is doing, it's just stunning. Listen to what he says. There are two ways in which a person may attempt to displace from their heart its love of the world. Either, number one, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, it's bad, 
so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that's not worthy of it. Or, number two, by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to secede it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. My purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method alone will suffice for the rescue and the recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. This is how your heart works. The way you grow, the way you change, is not actually through willpower. The way you grow is through what my old pastor calls joy power. Not by not wanting something bad, but by wanting something good even more. And that's what Moses saw. He was there in the court of Egypt. Treasures in abundance. Life of pleasure and ease and comfort. Who wouldn't want that? Of course he did. But God reached down and grabbed his heart. And Moses in that moment was able to say no to all of that temptation, all of that comfort, because he wanted something else even more than he wanted the comfort and the pleasure and the ease. He was looking forward to the reward. And I promise you, friends, if you want to see growth in your life, I don't only mean as a Christian, frankly, if you want to kick bad habits, if you want to shake things, the behaviors and the tendencies that you know you're just not proud of, willpower can only take you so far. It's joy power that's the ultimate motivator as we displace old affections by the expulsive power of new ones. But friends, what I'm interested in today is this. If this is true, if Thomas Chalmers, that man from Scotland, was right in his sermon, if Moses was on to something, then the whole key is what's the thing, what's our joy power in? What's the reward that Moses was looking for? What's the thing that if you get it, if you see it, if you have it, it displaces all the lesser affections. So that's what we want to talk about now. What is the reward? Come with me down to verse 26 again. Moses was looking at the reward. What's interesting about that word reward is it's mentioned a few other times in the book of Hebrews. And very unhelpfully, the author never gives us a definition. He never says the reward is X, Y, and Z. So throughout the book, the author's talking about the reward, but he never says this is what it is. So if we're going to get into it, we need to actually not look just at Hebrews. We have to look at the whole Bible. And here's what we see, two things that stand out. In Genesis 15, which is a passage Moses would have known, he would have been familiar with this part of the story of the people of God. God comes to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. God says to Abraham, 
I'm the reward. Not stuff that I give, but just who I am. My very presence is the thing that's going to satisfy your heart. So God himself is the reward. And then a little bit later in the Old Testament, we come to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is unique because it's the only psalm that was written by Moses. You know, a psalm is a song. So Moses wrote a song. It's Psalm 90. And in that song, Moses says to God, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Unfailing love is a very unique Hebrew word. We don't have a good English translation. It means something like the unending, unstoppable, loyal love of God that you can never rid yourself of. And Moses is singing and he's writing this song and he's saying, the thing that I want, the thing that I need more than anything is your unfailing love, your unstoppable, unshakable, unquenchable love. And so when you ask the question, what is the reward? I mean, what is Moses looking at? The answer is he's looking at God and he's looking at God's unending love. And that has captivated his heart. And he's able to say no to sin. He's able to resist temptation because to be with God and to dance in God's love forever is more beautiful to him than anything else. And you will be able to resist sin if God and God's love is the most important thing in the world to you. But it isn't always, is it? You see, it's one thing to say God himself is the reward. But in the day-to-day of our life, the promise and the temptation of sin feels a lot more real and near. And living for God and his love feels abstract. It feels far away. It feels distant. So it's one thing to know, okay, that's what the reward is, but how does it so grab our hearts that we become people who live for it and who can resist anything that would take us away from it? Two things. Number one, There's a reason why we're talking about this when we talk about faith. If it was easy, you wouldn't need faith. Faith is how you lay hold of promises that are out there in the future and somehow experience their power in the present. The reason temptation is hard is because the promises that it brings feel very near and imminent. But what faith does is it sees into the invisible. It sees, verse 27, The king who's there but can't be seen with the naked eye. And faith reaches out and allows those promises and those truths to be drawn in and to become more real. So part of the answer is we have to be people of faith. We have to be people who recognize that sometimes in following God, it does feel like a sacrifice. It does feel costly to obey him. But look at what's coming. Life with God forever, his kingdom and his promises and love that will never end. And faith reaches out into that future and it pulls it into the present. But sometimes in the present, it's real costly. But we have something that even Moses didn't have. Because see, Moses was someone who looked ahead and he looked to what God promised in the future. But friends, don't you know our faith? It doesn't just look forward, but it can also look back. Because we have something, someone, that Moses could only see like a shadow. But we see the substance. 
When Felicia read the scripture earlier, you may have noticed she read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 12. When the Bible was being written, whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know the author, but whenever that person was writing Hebrews, he, the, he or she didn't say, Hebrews chapter 11, dot, 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 dot. okay, stop. Hebrews chapter, there's no chapter divisions in the Bible. So when this person is writing Hebrews and talking about all the examples of faith, it's not a new thought at the end of chapter 11. Because when we get to chapter 12, the author mentions the ultimate example of faith, Jesus. You see, when we talk about faith stories and we talk about the heroes of faith, do you know who's the greatest exemplar of faith who's ever lit? It's Jesus himself. So let me read to you a few verses from Hebrews 12 that help put all this into perspective. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, do you hear that? Do you hear what the author is saying? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, when he died on the cross, do you know what was motivating him? It was not willpower. Jesus knew what was coming and he didn't say, well, I don't really want to do this, but got to do it because this is how they're going to get saved. So I guess I'll do it. Willpower, clamp down, just get it done. That's not what led Jesus to and through the cross. According to the text, the answer, what led Jesus to the cross? It was joy power. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus, like Moses, was able to endure that hardship because he was looking at something that captivated his heart and brought him joy. But what's, what would bring joy to Jesus? I mean, Jesus is God. He's eternally existed in perfect love and friendship with God the Father and God the Spirit. What could, what could be a reward for the person who already has everything? And do you know what the answer is? Do you know what was the joy that led Jesus to the cross? It was you. The only thing that Jesus has after the cross that he doesn't have before is you. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he does so with joy. Yes, there was part of him that doesn't want to die. Humanly speaking, he doesn't want to endure the pain and the agony. But he wants something else more. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to bring you into his family. And so the text says that for the joy, insert your name, set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Joy power. You were the joy. And now you begin to see. How does Jesus become your reward? Only when you see that you were his reward. You will be able to see Jesus as your reward if you see that you were his. So let's 
end on a practical note. Earlier, I mentioned this example about forgiveness. Our hearts want to get revenge when we're hurt, but the way of Jesus is the way of forgiveness. So how do we become people who forgive? Willpower is not going to be enough, but joy power can be. So when you're hurt and you're tempted to get revenge, to pay them back, to slander, do you know what putting the gospel into practice means, what it looks like? You look at Jesus and you see him joyfully going to the cross and you see what it cost him to forgive you. You see what it cost him to rescue you and to bring you into his family. And you say, if he loved me that much, if he gave that much up for me, then I would be foolish not to give everything up to follow him and to trust that even when it doesn't make sense or even when it doesn't feel like the thing I want to do, following him is always the way to my deepest happiness. So at this moment, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to grant forgiveness and I'm going to walk in the way of Jesus because look at what Jesus has done for me. Jesus becomes your joy when you see that you were his joy. He becomes your treasure when you see that you were his treasure. And that's how we grow. That's how we change. Not immediately, not perfectly, but slowly and gradually we become people who look like Jesus in this world because we see that we were the joy that led him to the cross. That's how you resist sin. That's how we grow as people. And that's how we bring Jesus and his grace not only into our hearts, but into our city. So let's pray for that now as we come to our time of response. Our God, thank you for this really powerful passage. And as we come now to our time of response, I ask that you would do a really powerful work in our hearts because some of us are stuck in sin today, whether it's behaviors we're not proud of or even more basic, just postures of our heart that are keeping us from you and fullness in you. Lord, we need to be able to use these tools to resist temptation and resist sin, which simply means we need Jesus. We need him. We need to see him going to the cross with joy for us. So right now, as we sing and as we surrender and as we respond, pour out your spirit on us. Pour out your spirit on this place. Give us faith to see Jesus, faith that can walk, faith to walk with you and to resist temptation and sin. Use this time, we pray for your glory as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.